Good morning, my name is Tim Wood. Beth and I lead the global engagement team here at TRC, and I'm delighted to preach the word this morning. First of all, a very happy July 4th to you all. I will freely admit that it is only since 1991 that I have celebrated July 4th with overflowing joy. Because on that day, I proposed to Beth, and on that day, she said yes immediately. Um, Beth is often very deliberate in her responses, particularly in the small things of life. But in this big thing, she said yes without a pause, and therefore my heart could <laughs> return to its normal um, beating. He exited us, he saved them for his name's sake. This morning we're going to see that for his name's sake, God's purposes will not be thwarted. Our text is, as we know, from Exodus chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verses 8 through 22. I trust it will appear on the screen in due course. So if you are able, I would be grateful if you, you could stand and we will read the text together. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birthstool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous 
and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Please be seated. In this text, we are still setting the scene for the exodus of the people of God from Egypt. Enslavement and murder are set within the providence of God and the fearfulness and the fearlessness of his people. As Mitch has often said, there is a dark kingdom opposed to the kingdom of God. Egypt's persecution of Israel is not only a historical fact, but it also sets up Egypt as a type for the opposition of the kingdoms of earth to the kingdom of God. Like Babylon and Sodom, Egypt remains in the Bible a standing metaphor for a godless society. There is hope, though. God desires to make himself known to the nations, even Egypt, to her king and her people. So without further ado, let us dive into the text. The first chunk of this narrative, as Mitch introduced that term to us last week, is the, our verses 8 through 14. The new king enslaves the people of Israel in order to thwart God's purposes. We have here the rise of a new dynasty in Egypt. Did I pronounce that properly? I trust so. Recently in the UK, a new king was crowned. King Charles III now reigns. But he belongs to the same house of Windsor as his mother. There is more continuity than discontinuity. There has been some change, but the royal family carries on. But here we have a new dynasty, the inauguration of a new era in Egypt, one that brings cataclysmic change for the people of God. The new king did not know Joseph. This means that he refused to acknowledge Joseph. He refused to recognize the blessing that Joseph brought to Egypt. This is the first appearance in the book of Exodus of the verb to know. It is a key term in the narrative, occurring over 20 times in the first 14 chapters. So, as we read Exodus, be on the lookout for the verb to know. 
and see how it shapes our narrative. Note well, the king is nameless. We do not know his name. Joseph we know. The names of the midwives we will know. But the kings of Egypt in Exodus are nameless. They do not figure uh, in the grand scheme of things. The king, however, does recognize that the family of Jacob that once numbered 70 has become a people group. For the very first time in Scripture, in verse 7, in verse 8, sorry, in verse 9, for the first time in Scripture, Jacob's family is regarded as a people. Verse 9 reads, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many. So the first time in Scripture, the clan has become a people group. We have the nucleus of a nation, and uh, God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. I will make you a great nation. So the king, the new king recognizes that a people group has formed within his land. With great irony, the king fears that the sons of Israel may go up from the land, they may leave the land, they may escape the land. This is precisely what will happen as the story unfolds. His desire to stop the exodus of Israel from Egypt is in direct opposition to the plan of God. The new king wishes to implement a shrewd plan. His plan to stop the people from multiplying was to enslave them and afflict them. This proved counterproductive in at least two ways. Firstly, by afflicting the people of God, he was fulfilling the prophecy made to Abraham when God made a covenant with him. Back in Genesis 15, verse 13, we read, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Now for know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So enslavement and affliction were prophesied for the people of God. The same verb afflict that occurs in Genesis 15, verse 13, is to be found here in verses 11 and 12. They, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. The takeaway from this is that as the people of God, we are not spurred, we are not spared persecution or affliction. 
Mitch made application through, as he went through the text, and we'll do the same this week. Jesus himself said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. John 16, verse 33. So very much like Abraham, we have been warned that we will suffer in this world. We are not spared persecution and suffering. The people of God are now experiencing intense suffering in Egypt, whereupon once they were flourishing, once they were experiencing the blessing of God and growing into a nation, as verse, chapter 1, verse 7 states. But now they are experiencing enslavement and affliction. The second way in which this proved counterproductive is that the more they were oppressed, the more they flourished. There is a certain irony in this outcome. The more that they were afflicted, the more the divine blessing increased. The effort to reduce the growth of the nation resulted in the expansion of the nation. Therefore, the Egyptians came to loathe them, to dread them. It seems that the king is not as shrewd as he thinks. God's purposes will not be thwarted. The honor of his name is at stake. Verses 13 and 14 show how this dread, this loathing, led to an intensification of the oppression the Israelites were experiencing. They also introduce us to the verb to serve, another key word in the narrative of Exodus. So be on the lookout for to know and to serve. Here is how Alexander translates the text. The Egyptians made the Israelites serve with severity. They made bitter their lives with heavy servitude, involving mortar and bricks, and with all kinds of servitude in the field. All their servitude with which they served them was with severity. In other words, the root serve appears five times in these two verses. Twenty-three words in these verses, five of which are serve. They were serving seven days a week, and their service was harsh. Their servitude was harsh and cruel. The scene is being set for deliverance, for liberation from oppression. We speak of liberty, especially with July the 4th. But here is liberation in a very real sense. This is how Morales puts it. Rightly understood, liberation is being set free to serve Yahweh, the one true and living God. Typical of the Hebrew language in general, the word 
For serve, avad, is open to a variety of meanings, including to slave and to worship. And the Exodus narrative may be read as a transition from Israel's slavery under Pharaoh to Israel's obedience and worship of Yahweh. From building cities to glorify the name of the Egyptian king, whose name is quite conspicuously left out of the story, to building the tabernacle, a dwelling for the glory of Yahweh's name among his people. There's a lot going on in that paragraph. Um, the storehouses that were being built are a world, word play storehouse is a word play on the word for tabernacle. And so once they were building storehouses for Pharaoh at the end of the book, they are building a tabernacle for the presence of God amongst his people. So the word to serve can mean uh, to serve, to work as a slave. It can mean to serve God, to worship God. And that, that word will be employed to great effect as the story unfolds. The terrible experience of severe servitude that we have anticipates what God will do as the narrative unfolds. Let us just look at three points. From severe servitude to Sabbath rest. From severe servitude to Sabbath rest. God commands Sabbath rest in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Instead of work, 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 all the time, his people were told not to work on the seventh day. Just think, 52 days a year to rest and celebrate the Lord. In terms of application, do not try to get around this. We live in a 24-7 world, but we were not designed for that world. God rested after he had completed creation, and he commanded us to do likewise, to rest on the seventh day. Burnout is a very real issue and affects our colleagues and affects our brothers and sisters. A, a weekly day of rest is what God stipulates for his people. In honor of the resurrection and the new creation it heralds, we celebrate the first day of the week as the day of rest, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So, I hope that we do observe a day of rest. I work for a company that is owned by a Christian family. And as a result, the retail establishments are never open on a Sunday. Just down from where I work, there is, an op there is a, a Chick-fil-A. It too was established by a Christian family. It is not open on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, so its employees can rest and worship God.
from severe servitude to Sabbath rest. Point two, from severe servitude to righteous laws. Right after the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, the first laws in Exodus 21, 1 through 11, relate to regulations of slavery. And then later on in Exodus 22, the people are told not to exploit or oppress resident aliens since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. So in other words, Moses is saying, God is saying, remember how you were treated. Never treat other human beings in that way. So do the right thing in your employment practices. But finally, the most important point, from slaves of sin to slaves of God. The Exodus event is the major story of salvation in the Old Testament. It prefigures the redemption won for us by Jesus Christ. Once we were slaves to sin leading to death, now we are enslaved to righteousness, which results in sanctification. This is the gospel. Check out Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. We will read verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This morning, whom do you serve? What is your destiny? Have you experienced the transfer from death to life? If you have any doubts about this, if this radical transformation has not happened in your life, please talk to a follower of Jesus. Talk to someone whom you know to be a Christian this morning before you leave. It is so important that you reap the fruit of eternal life rather than be subject to the wages of sin, which is death. Moving on to the next chunk, 15 through 21. Here we have the second initiative that the king took. The new king orders the Hebrew midwives to kill Hebrew newborns in order to thwart God's purposes. The first initiative had failed. Enslavement and affliction only caused the nation to expand even further. So the king now resorts to clandestine genocide to thwart God's purposes. 
he instructs the midwives to kill newborn sons as soon as their mothers have given them birth. It seems the boys were to be murdered before they had even made a sound. While the mother was at her most vulnerable, the midwives were to kill her son. The sheer cruelty of this order is unspeakable. How would you have reacted? What would you have done? The midwife, Shifra and Pua, by name, feared God. They disobeyed the order of the king and let the sons live. Two weeks ago on Father's Day, Mitch taught us to teach our children to fear the Lord, to fear God. Praise God that these midwives were raised in the fear of the Lord. When crisis came, they feared God. Twice we are told that the midwives feared God. This is clearly the emphasis of the text. They showed a commitment to God by saving the lives of the newborn boys. Since they feared God, God dealt well with them. Since they feared God, he gave them families. Note well, the pharaohs were considered to be divine. They were regarded as gods. To disobey the Pharaoh, the absolute ruler of Egypt, was exceedingly courageous. Exceedingly courageous. As Alexander comments, the supposedly divine ruler of Egypt is defeated by two foreign women who fear Yahweh. Even when challenged on their disobedience, the midwives stood their ground. Pharaoh accepted their defense. These women were fearless. They even compared the vigor of the Hebrew women to the Egyptian women. These women go down in history. They are named. Many commentators comment on the fact that they were deceptive and they lied and things of that nature. The whole point is that they obeyed God, they feared God, and they disobeyed the king because we are to preserve life. We are not to participate in the murder of infants. And that is why they've gone down in history. This second initiative of the king failed. Once again, we read in verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very strong. Two midwives thwarted the evil purposes of the king. God's purposes will not be thwarted. The honor of his name is at stake. Praise God for women who fear him. 
Give thanks for women who save lives. We will see more courageous women as we read further. Chapter 2 is replete with courageous women in Exodus. Chapter 4, another woman comes in at a very dramatic moment. The Exodus, the early chapters of Exodus feature courageous women serving God. Reflect on what you would do in such circumstances. Are you known as a person who fears God? What is your default mode? If the, the default mode, if the normal disposition of these midwives was not to fear God, they would have crumbled before the command of the king, before the command of Pharaoh, the divine uh, absolute ruler of Egypt. When, your crisis, when a crisis of conscious comes, consciousness comes, will you instinctively fear God or will you fear the Pharaohs more? This is something which uh, weighs heavily upon um, uh, those in healthcare professions. Pray for our healthcare professionals in our congregation. There are huge ethical challenges with respect to the beginning of life, the end of life, and adolescence. Just about every endeavor is now contested. Pray for the teachers in our congregation. They too need to fear God in the face of a contested workspace. May we fear God in all the domains that we engage. Finally, verse 22, the third initiative of the king is launched. Pharaoh orders all his people to kill Hebrew sons in order to thwart God's purposes. The genocide now becomes overt. Pharaoh addresses all of his people. The Egyptians are to kill the Hebrew sons by drowning them. Man's humanity to man knows no bounds. Within the book, the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus will suffer devastating consequences. His opposition to the purposes of God will result in the death of every firstborn son among the Egyptians. In other words, this initiative has consequences for the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. God is still in control. We may easily see similarities between what this Pharaoh commanded 
And what Herod commanded at the birth of the new Moses, King Herod decided to kill all the Hebrew, inf all the Hebrew sons, all the Hebrew infants in an attempt to kill Jesus, Matthew chapter 2. The conflict between the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdom of God continues and can be deadly. It is serious. So at the birth of Jesus, Hebrew sons were once again killed. That we can develop later on. So the new king implemented three initiatives to thwart God's purposes. He ramps up the intensity with each one. The first two failed. We will see the outcome of the third next week. Just in case we think that this is utterly awful, and that we as humans have moved forward, that we have progressed, that we are somehow better than the Egyptians. Let me remind you that that is not the case. Genocide is still going on around the world. As we were preparing to leave for Mozambique, and a horrific genocide was occurring in Rwanda. In the space of a hundred days, at the lowest estimate, 500,000 Tutsis were killed by the Hutu using machetes, one to one. Our daughter went to school with the daughter of a missionary who served in Rwanda and was there at that time. He was there as this genocide was taking place. And as he went to rescue two other missionaries and to bring them to an evacuation point, he swept into the, ho the drive of these missionaries. And as he was about to take them, they said, we are sheltering 10 Tutsis. We cannot leave them. They will be killed. What can we do? They prayed. And they decided to take the Tutsis in the back of the pickup. There was a canopy. They threw a, a tarpaulin over the Tutsis. And they locked the back of that, cana of that canopy. And they drove out into the streets, thronged with the marauding gangs of Hutu, armed with machetes. And they finally made it through, traveling at no more than 10 miles an hour to the evacuation point. And he had been told not to bring any Tutsi into this evacuation point, because it too would be overrun if it was known that there were Tutsis inside. Unfortunately, he was just waved through the gate. 
And he left the vehicle parked at the very back, and he unlocked the canopy, and therefore saved the lives of these 10 Tootsie. Fear God. Genocide happens even today. So this is very real, and one day you may be involved in very severe uh, situations. Fear God. Do not fear the pharaohs of this world. It is now time to worship in song. As the musicians and singers assemble, let us remember that even in the midst of unspeakable suffering and persecution, God's purposes will not be thwarted. The honor of his name is at stake. For his name's sake, he will deliver us and bring us to his eternal kingdom. We can entrust ourselves to him and rest in his providential care. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you. You are bringing all history to its rightful end. We trust you because we know that in the end all wrongs will be righted and all injustice will be dealt with. May we ever fear you and recognize, recognize that for your name's sake you will save us. Enable us to worship you well this morning in song. Amen.